I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. In this week's episode of the podcast, I'm sitting down with architect William Smart in the new Sydney offices of Smart Design Studio. It's such a pleasure to meet you finally, after having followed your work for quite some time, and thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. Mm, Pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you too. Thanks, William. So I wanted to go back to the very beginning um, of your studies before you uh, actually formally started your career, and I read that you had studied under Bill Busfield, uh, who was one of the members of Archigram. Uh, who I have a little understanding of who they were and what they did, but I wanted to ask you maybe for you to talk a little bit about what you learnt from him and maybe if there are any key lessons that you can sort of talk about that you have taken away from that period of time. Mm. I, it, it's, I would say Bill's one of the most influential architects in my life uh, and certainly in the top couple for sure. And... I had really come from the country and I moved to the city and had had no uh, architectural training and very little involvement with the arts world at all, uh, to the point where really years 11 and 12 I just did academic subjects and no art at all. So I arrived at university feeling pretty lost and out of place and I just felt first semester I would make error after error. And uh, people might say maybe that's not an error. But it felt like that. I would present a design and people would say, oh, my God, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> and then second semester, within a couple of weeks, Bill had pulled me aside and said, I need you to come to my office at lunchtime. And I really thought that he was going to say, maybe you should be thinking about another subject or another course. But he encouraged me to read some books on Cedric Price, which I read and devoured, really, and found that it started to open my eyes into ideas of systems and concepts and, and what architecture could be. And I just sort of flew from probably one of the poorest, one of the students with the poorest results to one of the top of the class within a couple of months, just through the encouragement of someone being able to see a little bit of potential there and lifting it up. Mm. And through good fortune, I managed to have Bill as, a, as my design lecturer Uh, every semester, every second semester, so once a year, one semester for five years in a row, and he became my thesis tutor as well. Mm. And so we developed a very strong relationship, which is kind of uh, where he would challenge me to do things I felt uncomfortable with. I would feel uncomfortable doing that and then uncover some kind of extraordinary thing in the process. And I've come to ask him afterwards, how did you know, what did you do? And he said, I could just see a a talent in you that I thought could be elevated. And um, I also have come to do quite heavy looking buildings. Like I love concrete and brick and all these things that Bill wasn't that interested in. And so I've asked him recently, did you see that back then? And he said, yeah, absolutely. I could see all that back then, but I didn't, I was pushing you to explore other things as well. But it was a massive influence and I kind of, we've maintained a friendship over the years and we chat on the phone, we catch up yearly 
he's kind of an incredible guy. Yeah, you were very lucky to have someone yeah. in your life in such a, at a formative, formative age and a formative period, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, look, if that yeah. didn't happen, I don't know what would have happened, but it would have definitely turned out differently. I, was, I, I always feel very lucky that that little encounter happened. Mm. And were you aware of who or what Archigram was before that? Um, Not before Bill, but, okay. but I think when Bill came along. So I think he'd been doing drawings within the Archigram group. So there was Rob, Rod Heron, Ron Heron and uh, Peter Cook were the main founders mm. and they would sort of work on projects like the Walking City or the Plug-in City and these kind of hypothetical projects from the 60s where they would really be exploring what technology meant today and how would that influence architecture and there are other people like Cedric Price that were talking about linear cities so they would explore something like if you had a train line running through a city wouldn't you change the shape of that city then mm. like how does it how does it become very different so they were themes that were running through our university was was if this is happening in the world then how do we respond to that mm. and in the 80s it was very different to what we have now um, so computer technology was emerging, but Bill was encouraging me to read books from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and they have a place there called the Media Lab, and I was reading about the Talking Heads projects and all those kind of things, and kind of wondering where televisions and screens would end up in the future. <laughs> so we were kind of working on projects, like we had a, a little project together on the electronic window, we called it, which was about having television access into buildings and how would you explore that and use that. Mm. Mm. So I think he, he brought forward all those kind of ideas into our university and really pushed us to explore technology. Mm. So lucky. I'm only really aware of them because of the somewhat recent acquisition of you know, some of their work um, by the M Plus Museum in Hong Kong. That's kind of how right. I started to know who Archigram were. But yeah, that sounds like an incredible experience for you. Mm. Um, and so you went from directly from studying to work with Norman Foster in London, is that right? Or was Almost. there something in between? Yeah, I had, a, I had a year off in Perth, so I graduated at the end of 1990. The, that was really the last big recession that we had and there was, was not a workaround, so I worked part-time in a hotel, part-time in an architect's office and, and I designed and documented a house for my parents in that year and saved up enough money to go traveling. Mm. And I ended up living in the south of France for a year and a half. And quite by luck, really, I ended up in an architect's office in a very small part of France with someone who'd studied under, a, or had worked actually, had been business partners with a guy called Ferdinand Pouillon, who did some extraordinary architecture in France. So he was deeply rooted in the, the foundations of postmodernism. I say the foundations because it was more about the early days of what that was about, so proportion and scale and, mm. and classic, classical ideas and modern ideas as well. And we went on to do lots of projects together over a year and a half. And at the end of that, I was offered a place at Foster and Partners at the time when that practice was about 70 people. Wow. And it, over the time that I was there, it grew to about 130. I stayed for three and a half years. And it was an amazing place, really. I felt like... I had felt that uh, the level of talent that I had, and I was sort of, I was definitely one of the better students in my class, that became insignificant in that place. Because mm. everybody was better than me. You know, <laughs> there was kind of an extraordinary level of talent. And, and by that, it wasn't uncommon to fluently speak two or three languages. 
uh, people there were very ambitious, they were very talented, uh, very articulate. I, I found it an incredibly inspiring place and I had thought when the job came my way that it would be probably the best place in the world to learn how to document and detail buildings because mm -hmm. they were so renowned for doing that. And what I hadn't expected was the clarity of the thinking there. So mm. it, was, it took me by surprise actually. So if they had a new commission, they would really look at the project and try to understand what it was about. So what's the essence, what's the idea, what is the problem to solve and they'd articulate that very clearly. So it might be they would come back at the end of the design process and say the challenge here is how to open up the ground plane as much as possible and make that very porous and engage with the city whilst providing security to the building and also giving an experience of the building at ground floor. Mm. That's not retail. So they kind of articulate that and then they explore ways of doing that. So incredibly rigorous in the, the clarity of thinking and that manifests itself in buildings that are very simple and diagrammatic and beautifully detailed because I think that clarity of thinking runs mm. all the way through. That's interesting. And did you have many opportunities to work directly with uh, Lord Foster? I think he's a Lord now, isn't he? Yeah, no, not, not, <laughs> not a lot, no. There was just, there was a period, because I'd been living in France and you had a document in, in French, there was a period where I was working on his house and I was still under another director, but occasionally he'd lean over my shoulder and, mm. and look at it and say, why would you do that? And sheepishly <laughs> 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 explain what I was thinking. Um, but, that, but that was really all. He was travelling a lot back then, so mm -hmm. he would be in this studio two to three days a week mm -hmm. and the rest of the time overseas. And, um, and we sat in on design mm -hmm. reviews and occasionally Norman would call an all-office meeting to say some important news or explain some way of new way of working or old way of working that he wanted to, to reinstate in the future. Mm -hmm. So certainly felt his presence through the office, but mm -hmm. it's a... A large organisation and hierarchical and you know I was certainly uh, one of the most junior people there. Uh, yeah that sounds like it must have been quite an incredible experience as well though to have been there when it was 70 people is certainly not small but smaller yeah. than what it is now yeah, at yeah least. it's like, a, like, one, like less than one tenth of what it is now isn't it mm. yeah, it's a very different place but I, I mean I think they're kind of extraordinary for maintaining uh, the DNA through all the projects, like it's kind of, it doesn't doesn't feel like you have the A projects and the B projects. It feels like everything is hitting the mark all the time. It's mm, amazing. So I want to talk now a little bit more about your work since um, founding Smart Design Studio. Mm. And I've heard architects and designers, I think, say that you know their best work comes when there is a great client behind a project. Mm. And I wanted to ask you. What does that mean? What does a, a great client-architect relationship represent to you? What does that actually mean from your perspective? Hmm. Um, to, to create a, an incredible project, I think the relationship between the architect and the client needs to have a lot of trust in place. And also um, uh, the, there's the trust part of it. There's also the openness to communication. So you need to be receptive to ideas and I need to hear the ideas. So I feel like my responsibility, if I'm doing a house in particular, is to to make a marriage between the client and that house. That they walk in and they feel like it's their home, they own it, it expresses who they are. They're able to talk about the ideas in a meaningful way and they relate to them. Um, so I've got to listen to everything they say and sometimes that's a bit about 
it's looking at the artwork they own or the furniture they own to kind of understand what they love. And sometimes it's just about the little things they say and how they like to park the car or, you know, they don't like to ride bikes or whatever it is that's, you know, or they, they hate chips and stains and, you know, practical things like that. That would mm. tell me about who they are and what they like. Um, and then I feel like uh, there's a little part of letting go and that's why the trust is quite important. I feel like the best work I've done is when, when the clients have let go, actually, mm. and let us do something great. So... You know, I've been running my business now for 23 years and the first five to ten was very much about people coming and saying, I, I want this, you know, can you draw it up for me? Mm. And I would always take it further and do it differently, but, but basically that was my role and I was kind of... They'd come to the relationship thinking that I would be able to help them create what they had in their minds. And the last ten years especially, it's... It's the, the balance has flipped the other way where people come and say, I have an opportunity, can you build me something that's great? And sometimes the briefs are very loose. They don't mm. really know what they want. They just want something great. So we go on a journey and we explore and generally I will show them options and, and planning arrangements and then explore things and say, you could do this, this or this. These would be the benefits of that. What do you think? And start to build a relationship. But if it's a good relationship, and most of them end up getting to that place then there's a fair bit of letting go. They trust, they want you to explore. We want to come to the table and say, I know you've asked for this, but I think this could actually be better. So just hear me out for a bit. I'll explain to you what we're proposing and what the benefits of that might be. Mm. And would you say that that has gotten easier throughout your career as you've uh, you know, managed to build and complete a number of projects yeah. that you, you know, people can see and obviously there is almost, I imagine, a sense of trust before they even get to you. Yeah, there, there's that. I mean, certainly uh, doing it for a long period of time and having a fair amount of grey hair <laughs> means that they, they think you know what you're doing and I hope <laughs> that's the case. So there's a bit of trust just through that. But there's also, uh, now there's a built portfolio of work so people can look at our website and just think, I can see there's these houses and these apartment buildings and these cultural buildings. I under, there's something there that runs through that's very consistent and I like that. Mm. I, I tend to, when I'm not sure about the clients and by that I just don't know whether they want what we do or they just want an architect, mm. I often explain that it can you should look at this early stage of engaging your architect as a bit like buying a car. Mm. You've got to kind of understand what you want, so the size and the type of car, four-wheel drive, sports car. And then you've also just got to look at the brand that you're after and interested in and understand the DNA of that. So even though Audi and BMW, for example, make cars that are on paper almost the same, mm. they have a different DNA sitting behind them. And you might like the look of an Audi more than a BMW and that therefore should sort of lean you in that direction because the architect's probably going to work fairly close to what they do, mm. even though we all kind of evolve and grow over time. Mm. Do you feel like there's a, an element of um, teaching clients? Because I imagine that for the, the, you know, a, a typical person in Australia, for example, the idea of working with an architect may be somewhat intimidating and culturally I, I think it's relatively new-ish here. Do you think there is a bit of hand-holding and sort of explaining? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think so. So we... Um, I mean, I think what's also certainly happened in the last five years is that 
people are quite, they have a lot of mood boards, they follow Instagram and Pinterest, so people come to the meetings with lots of images that they really love. And, uh, and most of them are really beautiful, actually. Mm. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that already exists. So the kind of things we would, let's call it, educate our clients on is just how does it perform environmentally? Uh, what's the movement of the sun? What is the light going to be like in the space? So there's some of those conversations. Mm. Also just levels of continuity. So in our work, we try to have a sense of continuity between the overall concept and the finest detail. So I like to say that the door into the toilet should belong to this house. It's not just another door handle. It's got to feel like the DNA is resonating to that point. Mm. And you can kind of sense it in the space where you are now where the cupboards relate to the, to the shapes and even the furniture sort of fits all together. And it's all referencing itself and really building a character which is unique and special. The other, the other part of it is we'll often just kind of pull up a book and bring a book to a meeting and say, this, this is a beautiful work. I think you might like this. And what, what I feel your project will relate to are these parts of it. And so that's the look of it, but pro probably also the planning and the arrangements and, and um, just sort of things we might feel they're interested in. And part of it's also to have a bit of fun. So it's quite fun to, in, you know, sort of look at books together, see how people react. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I want to talk about Indigo Slam because I think that that might be, it's fair to say, one of your most recognisable projects. It's been suggested that it might be the most beautiful house in the world and it, and it has num won a number of awards. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to, to go inside with the homeowner. Um, and it is really quite spectacular in every sense of the word. Um, I want to hear a little bit about how the client found you initially um, and what you can tell us about that design process because you know, mm. how, do you, how do you design Indigo Slam before you've had the opportunity to do something like that before? Mm. Um, it's a great question. Where did that trust come from? Yeah, but we had, we had trust, we'd established trust because we designed the White Rabbit Gallery for Judith mm. before that and that was a warehouse conversion so that um, the opportunities to be creative with form were fairly limited. I had to sit within the existing uh, four walls of that existing warehouse building. And then within that, we could create new, unique spaces and special opportunities. So following that, and some years later, Judith asked me to build her house, and I just jumped on the opportunity. Firstly, because I really loved working on White Rabbit with her, and also I just felt like she was calling for something spectacular, and I was so ready for that. Mm. I was really like so excited when the phone call came <laughs> and I think she said well she did actually uh, that I had to do it quickly and get a move on and if I didn't take the job then she was going to call Frank Gehry so <laughs> make up my mind pretty quick <laughs> you can't say no to that <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's how it, that's how it began and I kind of started the process by sitting down with her and showing her three books because she'd already told me the name of the project Indigo Slam mm. and in these books there were in each of them a project designed by John Pawson a beautiful minimal barn mm. it was quite soft and gentle but extremely minimal there was a, a beautiful house by Christian Liagra that was classic and elegant and timeless and and the third project was a museum by Alvera Caesar and that was kind of wild and strong and really expressive with concrete. And I just said to her, if I, before I start the project, if you could look at one of these and, 
and let me know what it is you have in mind, which one of them would best express that. Mm-hmm. And she said the Caesar stuff, hands mm-hmm. down. <laughs> and I felt that because the name Indigo Slam, to me, said strong, individual. I'm not, this is not the quiet, polite, you know, house next door. This is uh, something really strong. And so we developed a, very quickly I developed a concept for the house which was, I described as a language. Mm. And the language was about a way of peeling and folding form. And I, I pitched it to Judith that we would use this one language to tie everything together from the door handle to the toilet mm. uh, to the overall expression of the house. And then that became this kind of way, it's almost like an architect's grid in a way. So some architects will lay out a rectangular grid or a triangular grid and they kind of work in with that. And it's kind of the, the device for holding it all together and, and making things line up or, or not. Um, we use this certain language to bring light into spaces. So you might remember that in the stair mm. hall. It, it's used to, to drive light down a tall, a tall, tall volume and also to give privacy to the front facade. And then um, in every room, including the kitchen, it goes down to the detail of the bench top. How do you kind of take that curling, folding form and use that to bind everything together? Mm. And it's unusual to someone to really uh, want to embrace that, I thought. You know, good on you, Judith, for <laughs> for thinking that that was important and worth doing that. But she was also a client. She's very involved with the design process, but also very happy to let go. Mm. You know, so uh, times we'd come back and I'd say, Judith, I know you you said no to this last time, but I feel like I want to revisit it and explain it again. And then she just was open ears mm. and interested in that conversation. Mm. So we we worked on the design for about a year and a half and then we started building and then we finished the design while we were building. It took uh, three years to build. So overall a five-year project. Mm. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think there is anything else like it, well, that, that I have seen at least in mm. terms of just the level of detailing. Um, yeah. And I coincidentally met Kai Lu, mm. um, kind of almost accidentally actually, a couple of years ago and I talked to him a little bit about the process of creating the furniture for that space. And were you involved at all in that process? Was it quite collaborative? Not, uh, no, definitely not collaborative, but, but, but involved. And so we would create floor plans and then Kai, uh, Kai would come back and say, these are kind of, Kai, sorry, would come back and say, this is how I think that might fit in the space. And he'd have models and show us the models. And we would, we would share the design process and then we each had our area to work on. So there was, throughout the whole design journey, we were seeing what he was creating and he was mm. seeing what we were creating and we were both responding to that in our own way. Mm. But he, he absolutely designed every piece of furniture there um, just the way he wanted it. And we were kind of leading the architecture to sort of, I mean, I had that, you know, that kind of belief that I had to build a house that was for Judith Nelson and no one else in the world had had to kind of uh, express who she was as a person. Mm. That's what, I, and, and it had to fit her at the end of it that she would feel really comfortable to live in there. And I went on Sunday night, and there was a party for forty-five people. She had forty-five people for dinner at the big table, mm. and people playing piano and singing, and it was just awesome. It's mm. kind of exactly who she is as a character, and I felt very proud that that it it was a good fit for her. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I'm curious to know what sort of, in your mind, is more of a marker of success? Is is it the awards and the recognition or is it because she's kind of moved into this house and it is her? 
embodied in a yeah, piece of does, architecture. Yeah, uh, certainly I suppose that's, that's ultimately the best, isn't it? Like when you feel like um, the fit's very good. And it probably came, I mean, it's sort of a strange story, but one of my first projects I did was someone gave me the opportunity to a house. And it was probably my first new house that I did. And I put my heart and soul into it and did a really strong house. And the clients moved in and um, they brought their furniture along and it just didn't fit. Mm. And I looked at them and the furniture and the art and I thought to myself, I've given them the wrong house. It just doesn't fit who they are. Mm. And I felt really uncomfortable that I might have just pursued the opportunity that I had to build a great piece of architecture and it wasn't a great relationship. So very early on, this would be 20 years ago, I learned that lesson. It's kind of important I had to get who they were as a person and make sure that fitted. Mm. The irony to that story is that they're still living in the house now and they love the house. Maybe they've grown into it. <laughs> they've grown into it, yeah. <laughs> Still there now. So do you think that that means that you have to kind of learn how to put your ego aside? Is it ego or is it something else when you're in the process of designing a home for somebody yeah, else? Yeah, no, I, don't, I don't think – no, I think it's kind of – I suppose it's, you know, like a tailor might design a suit for someone. You've got to take the measurements. You've got to work – I mean, that's part of the problem to solve, isn't it? Mm. It's not – I'm not there to sort of say – here's my signature, you know, fit into it. There's a relationship there, so they want a little bit of that. But my job is to, to take their measurements and make it fit them. Mm. You know, it's got to be, it's part of that design process. And as an architect, I'm more interested in, in that and the emotional experience of a space than I am in, say, structural expression. I don't mind the structural expression stuff. And, mm. you know, um, but I want to kind of stir emotion in people's, guts when they walk into a room mm. I try to do it through the design of this building I want you to walk into the studio and think oh this is really beautiful I feel calm I feel um, you know a sense of creativity here and and for our staff to feel that as well and also I want to do it in our apartment you walk up here and you think I don't know where I am I feel like I've you know I could be you know on the coast somewhere or I might be in the northern hemisphere I don't know where I am I've just been disconnected from the world in this kind of strange brick vaulted room mm. but I guess that really is the main difference between architecture and art that you know architecture really needs to have it needs to have you know a performance it it, yeah. it has a function it's not just a beautiful piece of sculpture yeah. Um, yeah. and I wanted to talk to you a bit about that I've skipped a few questions ahead yeah. um, but you know I think within the, the discourse at the moment of contemporary architecture there probably would be an argument that some architecture is um, obsessed with form or too sculptural um, and I have heard you talk about how you would describe your architecture but um, do you think that having an element of sculpture or art or even symbolism is that an important aspect in in architecture or even in the work that you do? Yeah look I think uh, yeah, for me it is. Like I think, um, you know, I wouldn't... I mean, I would also say that a rectangle can be a piece of sculpture, you know, so it doesn't have to be curved in its form. Um, but and what I love is when uh, I feel like there's the whole thing coming together as one. And a great example of that would be the Opera House in Sydney mm. where there's kind of a beautiful form... There's a relationship to the function of the halls that sit within. There's a relationship to the city. They all kind of fit together as one. I think there can be... Like, there's a lot of trashy, curvy architecture, <laughs> which feels as though it's hollow. And when there's no depth to it, and by depth I mean 
meaning or or relationships to the function or relationships to the city when it just feels like it's been imported and dropped in and it's the look and the facade that's clipped onto a building. I don't feel uh, any love for that. I just feel like, uh, yeah, it's a new idea, that's it. <laughs> I call it a bit trashy because it feels a bit flimsy as an idea. So, so the form has to be integral to, to the work and has to kind of underpin the story. And when you do that, it becomes really interesting for us as architects as well. So we will develop a concept for every project. And this is about something and it's exploring that and then we try to explore it on many levels and bring layers to it. Mm. So how then you link it into concepts of sustainability, the way you live, uh, how you make it, can the maker's work be a huge part of the project as well is also really important to us. Mm. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the Opera House because I wanted to ask you about that. Um, you know, being based in the same city mm. is such an iconic piece of architecture, maybe one of the most recognisable buildings in the world. Do you think that that is something that you're conscious of when you're working? Yeah, I think it's a... Like, it's a masterpiece, right, isn't it? Like, it's just so good in so many ways. We sometimes... Um, I, I, you know, sometimes we'll use it to explain kind of concepts and ideas. Like, I feel like... I don't think I could have worked out how to put glass shelves underneath the big masonry shelves. So I've kind of often studied that and looked at that and thought that's kind of masterful. Um, and I've often used that as a way of explaining the layers of a project. So uh, in that case, it's big concrete vaults with tiles over them, essentially, or sails. And then underneath that, you've got a layer of glass and then a secondary construction of the, the concrete all being expressed and then parts of that as well. So I'll often kind of look to that as an example of what to do. Um, I think it was built at a time when we were being very optimistic as a country as well. Mm. And I do... What I, Probably my favourite part of the building is just its idea of being the best in the world, I think. Like, there was nothing holding Woodson and that team back was there. They were out to build the best opera house in the world. And I love that ambition. Mm. You know, not to be good. It's not good enough just to be good. You mm. have to be great. It's all about being great. So I find that aspect of it very inspiring. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really lovely to think about, actually. Uh, so we're, at, well, we're actually sitting in your apartment mm. um, and I wanted to ask you, because we've been talking about clients and trust with clients mm. and building spectacular projects, how different is that process when you're designing for yourself without a brief? Is that easier? Is it harder? <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely easier. <laughs> <laughs> The problem I have is I've just got to find the money to do it all. <laughs> and that can be, um, you know, a challenge, but we got through all of that. It was such a... Um, build, designing this building was just an absolute joy and building it was an absolute joy as well. And we set out to do that. So it was a three-and-a-half-year project and we just thought we have an opportunity to build something really special, to try to build something we didn't know how. In this case, in the apartment, we have catenary-shaped structural brick vault so it's not held up by uh, steel or concrete the bricks are supporting themselves with a bit of concrete over the top mm. and we just didn't know how to do that so what I wanted to do is to find go out and find the people that knew how and none of them had done it before but I could find 
some people that were experts in laying bricks. I could find some people that were experts in engineering. I found some people at UTS that could help me with uh, cutting the formwork, making the formwork to, to build it all from. And we went on the journey together. So it was a very um, uh, sort of construction-led project. So by that I mean we were thinking about how to build it as we were designing the building. It wasn't, it wasn't a case of thinking, I want to put vaults on the roof. Now how do I make them? The idea was how do we make, take an everyday material like a brick that you see all through this conservation area and just use it in a way that it hasn't been used before here in Sydney anyway. Mm. So it was kind of a super, super fun project and actually quite sort of uh, easy to go through the spaces because I also just could throw the, th the rule book away. I was just, because apartment's got no doors. I just didn't have to convince anybody that, <laughs> that we needed doors. That, that was sensible. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So there was no convincing through there. And um, with the studio as well, we wanted to make a space with no air conditioning. So uh, we designed it. We talked to our team. We said the benefits of these. Would you be happy for the temperatures to go up to 26 degrees in the middle of summer? Mm. And there was just 100% unanimous support for that acknowledging that we could make all our own energy and export to the grid and have a very sustainable office at the same time. So uh, I didn't have to convince a client, I didn't have to convince a committee, I didn't have to kind of go through and say these are, um, you know, unprecedented ways of doing it and there's risks associated with it. We were just able to take that risk ourselves and absorb it and do it. Mm. Mm. Um. Well, the light in here is magnificent and I think that's probably one of the, the common kind of uh, elements that I've noticed in, in the work of yours that I've actually had the opportunity to, to experience. And I read that you were quite surprised by the light at Indigo Slam and mm. how that sort of fell in different places. And I have to admit I was quite surprised by that because I had always assumed that architects were you know, masters of light and, and had this, you know, extraordinary ability to, <laughs> to predict where it may go. So I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about that and, and how, how do you design spaces with, with that in mind when you, when you don't know exactly how it's going to fall? Hmm. I think, I think um, there's, there's, well, for me anyway, there's all, I think about it a lot. So when I say uh, I was surprised by it, things work differently to what I thought and that surprised me so the stair hall for example was surprisingly darker than I thought it was going to be I thought it was going to be f bright and um, and then the other part of it was that the, the drama of the light coming into the space was more dramatic than I thought I thought it would be a bright space with um, brighter parts where the light came in but in that space it's kind of a medium level of brightness with almost shafts of light coming into the space, almost like a church that's got incense burning where you can see the light flooding in. That surprised me. And there were parts of the outside of the building where um, the concrete actually was facing back to the glass, but at certain times of the day, which was much more than I thought, so morning up until 11 a.m., there's, there's light falling on the inward-facing parts of concrete, which bounces beautiful light into the space. They're the parts I hadn't really thought about. Mm. And so in this space here, I was thinking about a north-facing vault and a south-facing vault. How would the light be different? It kind of works in a way that's cooler coming from the south, warmer from the north. You have to kind of look at it to see it, but I would always think about these 
the entry area was a bit darker than I thought it was going to be, but it actually works beautifully because you come into a bright space and that change of in light intensity makes it better, I think. Mm-hmm. If you go around with a light, light meter and you measure it all, it's all fairly bright, but, mm-hmm. but the changes in it, so having uh, reduced or increased intensity makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly the inside. I, haven't, I don't reckon I can really work it out. I mean, I think about it a lot, how much sheen is on the surface of a brick and um, whether rough granite is actually very matte or not. It's not, mm-hmm. actually. And then how, what, what does glass look like when it faces south or north? That looks entirely different. So I think about it a lot, but I'm, I'm always surprised by it. Every time I kind of think, oh, it's different to what I thought. I hadn't expected that. <laughs> and is that a pleasant surprise? Nearly always, yes. I don't, think, I don't think I've ever designed anything in the last 20 years at least where I've just thought this is too dark. I missed mm. it. I have done one too dark very early in my career and it sort of taught me a big lesson to... Uh, think very carefully about that. But I'm attracted to light. I love light. So it's sort of, I always want it to feel bright and uplifting. Mm. Well, you've certainly managed that here. Uh, so, you know, you talked about the three books that you took to Judith when you designed Indigo Slam and obviously uh, Norman Foster and Archie Graham must have been influences on your work at some stage, but I'm I'm keen to hear if there were if there are any other architects whose work that you admire greatly, and perhaps that you were travelling to visit when that was still <laughs> an option pre-COVID. Yeah. Were you one of those architects to travel and? Yeah, absolutely. Like I yeah. kind of dragged my partner to see all sorts of um, interesting and obscure things, and I love architecture from all different ages, ranging from Baroque to um, you know, kind of the architecture right of today. Um, it's always sort of a big part of our travelling is to to go and see beautiful buildings and go to kind of extraordinary places as well. So I'm kind of attracted to going to, you know, a fish market in Japan as much as I am to to see an obscure cemetery in Italy. <laughs> um, Let me guess, Carlo Scarpa? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I do, like, the, I kind of, I love the work of, I mean, I love different architects for different things. And what I, what they do and what we do is often very different. So I just completely admire David Chipperfield on s- all the work of their studio on so many levels. And uh, Alvaro Caesar is probably my favourite by far. I just mm. love most of his work. There's a church he did in Portugal called Santa Maria, and that's my favourite building of all time. I've never been to see it, actually, mm. but I'd love to go and see that. It's kind of strong and simple and confident and then quirky as well. Like, there's a door that's taller than you'd expect and a window that's in a spot that I wasn't expecting and and it, it's just a rectangle window sitting high. It sort of feels unexpected and everyday at the same time. Mm. But, yeah, always reading about stuff and going to see it and, you know, so I'll zoom off to the Prada Foundation in Milan and spend a day there and try to break into the areas you're not supposed to go to. (laughs) (laughs) Get behind the scenes. (laughs) Oh, lovely. And so aside from Portugal, uh, where else is on the top of your bucket list for places to explore and buildings to see? Yeah, like I think I haven't really done South America, but that's probably the place I want to explore next. And uh, I, I just love so much of Europe and France and you know, France, England, Germany, there's so much to see, and Spain in particular. Mm. Um, also, I think, you know, America has just so many extraordinary buildings. 
and I've done parts of Asia as well, although really I've never been to China and I'd love to go and have a look at the architecture there. So a lot to see. And there's a lot of really great architecture in our own country. So by the time mm. you, you know, follow the things that win awards, I do that, follow them. I try to, in the following year, go off and see as many of those projects as I can. Mm. That kind of keeps me fairly busy. So aside from your work and the Sydney Opera House, is there a, a favourite building that you could name in Australia? I haven't... Um, I, I would say, rather than that, I'd say I really, truly admire the body of work of Seidler um, Associates and I just feel like, like Australia Square, I just think it, they absolutely nailed that project. It's so beautiful in so many ways. The diagram in the city is strong. Um, the concrete formwork, the structure and ingenuity of the building is so great. So this, uh, I think Seidler would be my favourite Australian architect and mm -hmm. I love the work that, that they have done. And then I also, you know, I think QVB is an outstanding building in Sydney and, you know, there's other little gems like small churches and um, little uh, galleries in remote places that I think can also be very special and I'm just attracted to go back and see them or even rooms. Like I, I haven't been to Sydney Theatre since it's been redone but I used to just adore walking down that long hallway with the rough wooden boards to the end, cafe down the end of the space. So there are spaces within Sydney that I truly love as well. Mm, that's nice to hear. Well, I guess while we're all somewhat stuck in Australia, it's nice to have a bucket list of, of places to go see and visit. So thanks for sharing those with us. And yeah, thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Oh, pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.